Please be seated. Good morning and welcome to Christ the King. We are in a sermon series called Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi, a Latin phrase that means what is prayed uh, is what is believed and ultimately what is lived. It's a motto that reminds us of this ancient Christian connection between prayer and belief and action. Now, as Anglicans, we are guided by a prayer book, which has the liturgies for our worship. Now, I know that we have printed leaflets each Sunday, and if you're wondering where those words come from, there's a helpful little guide printed on green in the foyer that if you are new to the Anglican tradition of worship, might be a helpful guide that explains some of where our worship and our order of worship comes from. In this series, we are exploring some of that basis for our worship. We've considered so far gathering humbly as we prayed in the prayer, the Collect for Purity. Last week, we considered listening attentively to God's word, which is read and preached. And today, we're going to consider confessing corporately. We'll consider what is confession, how do we do it, and why is it important to do it together in our world. Now, I'm not sure how many big fans of the Olympics there are in this room, but there's at least one. One of my big disappointments of the Olympics this year, of course, was the inevitable time change involved in about half of our Olympics, which means that it's very hard for me to resist checking my phone to see the outcome of events before I watch them. But nevertheless, there are lots of great highlights that you can watch. My favorite highlight from the games this year involves the Australian decathlon team. Now, the Australian decathlon team has never won a medal, so it's an unlikely highlight, but they have two teammates, Cedric Doubler, I would attempt an accent if it would do honor to their names, and Ash Maloney. Now, the last event of the decathlon, the last, the 10th event, is the 1500 meter, at this point, a grueling event to run a mile after completing all other nine events. At this point in the competition, Cedric Doubler was out of the running. He was not going to be worthy of the medal stand. But his teammate, Ash Maloney, had a shot. Flannery O'Connor writes, to know oneself is, above all, to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against truth and not the other way around. Cedric Doubler looked at the facts, looked at the truth, and said, I'm not going to get a medal. But he also saw the writing on the wall and said, you know what? Ash might. And so he spent the entirety of the 1500 meter race running alongside his teammate, cheering him on. You can watch the replay if you want to see that I don't simply mean cheering, I mean encouraging vigorously, yelling in his face, telling him he could do it, running alongside him. There's great images that you can pull up online. Some of you younger folks might Uh, One, know what a meme is, and two, be familiar with a meme that says, get yourself someone who looks at you like blank. So in this case, the meme that has been around the internet says, get yourself someone who looks at you like Cedric Doubler looks at Ash Maloney. Now, Cedric was not going to be the hero of this story. He knew that he had failed in his event to some degree, but he listened to the advice of coaches. He encouraged his teammate, and at some level, what they completed together was more important than what just Ash could have done on his own. In some ways, corporately, they were confessing to what was possible. 
Now, confession is a word that for many of us, we immediately think of penitence and perhaps beating ourselves on the chest or beating ourselves up over things done. But I want to consider first, what is confession and the definition of it? There are two main definitions for confession. The first is admission, admission of guilt. And the second is profession, profession of belief. Our gospel lesson, gospel reading for this morning is often referred to as the confession of Peter, because in it, Peter answers the question, who do you say Jesus is? To confess is to acknowledge truth about God and about ourselves. Now, for Peter, in this passage, it is to say, Jesus is the Christ of God. But it's important that elsewhere in Luke's gospel, Peter also confesses what is true about himself. He says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Peter knows that confession is admission, but it's also profession in what we know to be true. When we confess our sin in our sinfulness, it's important to remember not just what we are confessing, but why we are confessing. Turn with me to our lesson in Hebrews 10. Page three of your service leaflet, you can find the reading, and inside the back cover, you can find some basic sermon notes. Now, we see in our lesson from Hebrews that sin requires a sacrifice, an offering, a payment. We see in verse 11, right off the bat, that sin cannot be taken away by human actions. It can't be taken away by ourselves. It couldn't even be taken away by the priest. Instead, it's taken away by God in Christ. Now, look at the difference between the human priest and the great high priest in this passage. The priest stands because his actions are ongoing. He must be at the ready. But Christ is seated because the effect of his sacrifice is ongoing. The priest, his action is daily. It's repeated. It needs to be done again and again, annually. In this case, referring to the Jewish festivals. But Christ's sacrifice is once for all time. And the reason that this is important, if you turn down to verse 17 and 18, is that the author of the Hebrews is drawing from the Old Testament prophets when he writes that because of Christ's action, God will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering to sin. So it's important to know that confession is admission of our guilt, not for the sake of wallowing in guilt, but for the sake of dwelling in the grace of forgiveness. Let me hit briefly what repentance, or excuse me, what confession is not. You see a quote in your service leaflet from Barbara Brown Taylor. It says, most of us prefer remorse to repentance. In other words, we would rather say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I feel really, really awful about what I've done, than actually start doing things differently. Repentance for Christians means confessing what is true about ourselves and actually turning and orienting ourselves to the way of God. Chronic guilt or wallowing in guilt is the price that we are willing to pay to avoid change. Confession is not meant to be browbeating for the sake of wallowing in guilt. 
It is meant to turn us to the God of grace. You might remember what your mother probably told you as she told, well, your mother didn't tell me, my mother told me, that I'm sorry means you'll make a change. For Christians, confessing to God, saying I'm sorry, means that he will change us. Repentance means a turning. And there's a great turn in our passage from Hebrews 10. Look down at verse 19. A great turn in literary terms often includes uh, a very important word, therefore. In Hebrews 10, the author has been building all of these truths together, reminding them of the truth of sin and the greater truth of Christ's forgiveness. And then there's this great turn, great turn from confessing sin to the freedom of grace. It says, therefore, in verse 19, we can have confidence. And later in verse 23, we can have hope. So admission of guilt is meant to turn us towards receiving God's grace. And that is meant to give us confidence to do the second part of confession, which is profession. Kathleen Norris, a novelist, writes, the Christian religion asks us to put our trust not in ideas and certainly not in ideologies, but in a God who is vulnerable enough to become human and die and who desires to be present to us in our ordinary circumstances. Think about it. What does Peter confess in our gospel reading? You might tell me, well, that's actually the wrong question. It's not what does Peter confess, it's who. Peter does not confess a list of doctrines, but a person. And so for us, the same is true. When we confess later in our service in the creed, we will confess who God is and what he has done. We'll confess who the Holy Spirit is and what the Spirit's work is in us and through us. And we'll confess who Jesus is and what he has done. That, as our Hebrews passage tells us, by his blood he has opened a new and living way for us to walk in now. That because of Jesus' death, we can be reassured that our faith is not in vain. Instead of being kept out of the holy place as the Jewish people would have been, we are actually invited to enter in, to draw near to God. That Romans 10, 9 would be true. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the truth of the gospel. It's the truth that our hope lies in. Our hope that Christ can change us. That Christ, as the prophet's words tell us, can put his law on our hearts. That God can actually write his word on our minds. And that ultimately this isn't just for us to remember good and true things, but this is to change us, that we would be compelled towards love and good works. So practically, let's talk about how do we confess as Christians, as those in the Anglican tradition. First, it's important to think about this in terms of adverbs, I think. How do we confess? Confess is a verb, so we need some adverbs, some good L-Y words. So we confess humbly, yes. Honestly, yes. Regularly, yes. And 
togetherly. Sorry, I didn't think through the adverb part when I wrote my notes. Um, the point is, we do this together, and where do we do it? The church. Surprise, we're going to do it together today. We're going to do both types of confession right after I finish. But it's not just to be done here when we're together, it's to be done at any time, individually and corporately. Because in confessing, we are declaring what is true about God and about ourselves. So whether it's on your own, with your families, in a quiet moment in your day, or gathered together on Sundays. It's a time to remember God's covenant. It's a time to remember that you're forgiven and washed clean and to receive confidence for the times when you forget that God has forgotten our sin. So when are we going to do this? As I mentioned, right as I conclude, we'll confess actually in two ways. Turn to your leaflet uh, on page four so you can see what I am referencing. For many of you, this is old hat. For some of you, it may be newer. After the sermon, it says the Nicene Creed, and I'll say, let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. And then if you look over on page five, you'll see the confession and absolution of sin. It says, let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Now, there are obviously, with my broad definition of confession being declaring that which is true of ourselves and of God, there are many other places in our service that we might characterize as confession. But these are the two most direct ways that illustrate the two types of confession. Look back at our Hebrews passage on page three. Sorry, I'm making you flip here and there. Specifically, verse 22 says, let us draw near. Now, who or to whom is it referring to? Let us draw near to who? Well, first, we're drawing near to God with a true heart. Our, our liturgy, when the priest stands to pronounce God's absolution of sin, he'll say something to the effect of God has promised forgiveness of sins to all who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him. So we are drawing near to God because he has promised forgiveness of sins. And we're drawing near to each other. We're confessing corporately. Think about all of the plurals in scripture, the one another's of the New Testament. The fact that when God called his people in the Old Testament, it was a people. It was the Jewish people. It was plural. My friends who either speak Spanish as a first language or speak Southern as a first language tell me that both have a better way of expressing plural pronouns. Y'all, right? One of my friends, John, who is a campus minister at Wake Forest, he likes to read in his context a given passage of scripture at their Bible studies, changing all of the plural used to y'all. You can imagine the hilarity of this uh, with some passages that have you about every other word. Think more specifically about the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He doesn't say, pray my father, he says pray to our father in heaven. Think about Paul's writings. Do you know that Paul uses the word my Lord or the phrase my Lord once in the entirety of his New Testament correspondence? Our Lord, 53 times. I think the point is made. 
Jesus is our personal savior. Your faith is meant to be personal, but it is not just individual. It's meant to be lived out together. Or as John Wesley says, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. So why do we confess corporately? Why is that important that we do that together? Because it might seem awkward at times. First, we confess corporately because we have corporate sin. So think about the first type of confession, the admission of sin. Think about the story of Genesis and some of the big sins of the people of God. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city bigger than all the others. Let us build a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves so that we would be great. These weren't just individuals turning from God on their own. This was people together and the weight of collective sin. I wonder about them. Did every single one of them want to make those bricks and build that city and make themselves great? I don't know, but I would imagine, much like the way we probably feel in today's culture, that a lot of them felt like they were going along with the flow of a current of a much larger group than themselves, and much of it was not up to them. So we confess corporately because we have corporate sin. I found this convicting this week. It was a note from a South African bishop, Peter Story, who, and this is an old quote, but he wrote to American preachers several decades ago, and he said, you have to help good people see how they have let their institutions do their sinning for them. See, it's much easier to excuse sin when it's not personal, when it's abstract, when we don't feel like it's something in our control, but we still have to confess it together. Now, the second type of confession, why do we confess corporately as we profess God's truth? Simply because these truths of the gospel are not just for you and for me, they are for us together. And affirming them is important for you and for me, but it's important for us. Articulating them together encourages us individually. This might be awkward for us as Anglicans, but I want you to turn to your neighbor. Some of you I know are spaced out in such a way that this might seem funny, but that's okay. There are people joining us online and it's even more awkward for them in their living rooms. Turn to your neighbor or your spouse or your child and tell them, I need you to remind me what's true. I'll wait. I need you to remind me what's true. The point is sometimes, you remember our verse from Romans? If you confess it and believe it in your heart, you'll be saved. Sometimes we don't believe it in our heart. Sometimes we just don't feel it. And I need you, Sarah, to remind me what's true. I need you, Jack, to remind me what's true. I need you, Mac, to remind me what's true. I need you, Charlotte, to remind me what's true. You need each other to remind, you need to remind each other what's true, both of yourself and of God. Anglican priest Esau Macaulay wrote this week, sometimes you have to worship in the presence of your doubts and disappointments to remind them who reigns. So we're not just reminding each other so that we can be high and mighty with respect to the person we're reminding, we're reminding them so they would know that God is high and mighty. Okay, this is important for us in the church. What about the broader world? Why is confessing corporately important for us? 
in Germany, in the face of destructive nationalist forces, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's and other, others were a part of a church movement called the Confessing Church. Now that's the English translation, I won't attempt the German, but the point is they defined themselves by both calling out what was true and confessing the faith of scripture, which meant opposing evil forces within their own country, and in confessing and calling out corporate sin that they saw in their world. In many ways, they felt, and you can read Bonhoeffer's writing to see that this is true, that the world had become morally careless, that ethically they had completely departed from scripture, and this included Christians within the German church. And so they called people to God in Christ, the same God that we read in our lesson today, sacrificed for sin and sets us apart to bless others. So why is corporate confession important? Because it is distinct. In our Anglican tradition, we don't think that worshiping in the Anglican way is the only way to follow Jesus. But we do trust that it's a good, true, and reliable way. And there are some correctives that we include in our worship which help us to remember. We confess corporately, so we remember it's not, our faith isn't just about us. We confess together because confessing doesn't happen in our culture. And together often doesn't happen in our culture, or together Lee, for that matter. Last week in his sermon, Reverend Glade said that listening to God's truth and even affirming it and professing it is different from offering our own commentary on it. We don't always need to add our voice to the noise. Sometimes we just need to remind each other what is true from what we have heard and especially heard in God's word. So first, it's, it's distinct to confess. Second, it's distinct to do it together. And this is true even in the church, right? John Calvin wrote, there's so much peevishness in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. Well, I said I need you all to remind me, but I don't need the church of Sarah and the church of Jack and the church of Mac and the church of Charlotte. I need you all here to remind me what's true. If we experience division here, how much more apparent is it within the divisions of our society? Confessing corporately binds us to Christ and nearly as important, it binds us together that where there is division, love covers over a multitude of sins. Not our love for one another, not our high and mightiness towards one another, but God's high and mightiness and graciousness to love us. God's love in Christ binds us together. And that is distinct in our world. When you choose to love someone across a division, consider the ways in which that shines the spotlight on God in our world. So it's distinct to confess, it's distinct to do it together. And third and finally, it is powerful encouragement for us. We spent a week uh, up in Maine last week uh, at a family cabin and my mom's extended family has a little cottage next next door and we always get to see our third cousins. My cousin, Tim, is a train mechanic. He lives a very different life than I do and he knows many things which I do not know. And one of the many things he told me last week is how a turbo engine works. Now, I'd, I thought a turbo engine worked because they slapped the little plastic decal on the, car on the back of my car and I paid $3,000 more. That's not how it works. It works because 
extra air, more air is forced into the combustion part of the engine and it causes more power to be the output. I'm sorry, some of you are very offended at that very poor lay explanation of a turbo engine. But that's what I retained. Tim, if you're watching, I'm sorry. I was listening attentively. The point is, more air equals more power. More of us together means more power. Because, yes, Sarah and Mac and Jack and Charlotte can encourage me individually, but if Sarah and Mac and Jack and Charlotte are all encouraging me, whew, that's better than just one. The verbs are plural. Look at our passage, specifically verse 22, 3, and 4. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. All plural, all powerful. You notice what he's commending? Faith, hope, and love. This isn't something new. This is the gospel message. Encourage each other with the gospel basics. Faith, hope, and love. Because powerful encouragement, as he writes, leads to powerful action, to love and to good works. There's power in saying it. There's power in doing it. So don't give up meeting together. And instead, say it and do it together. 